So who's gonna who's gonna start? Well, we still don't have our theme song. That's good. Some people actually no, like the penny like, whistle. Oh, that's a different one, this though. This is a different one, yeah. That's it's one's, broken. That one's a little more gentle yeah. than yeah. you. Some people liked it. You got good feedback on Yeah, that. a couple of people said they liked the music on this. <laughs> <laughs> so but I, I, I've commissioned our friend John. Did you tell him? Yeah, I told him, and he said he would be happy to, but he wanted to get the gig that we went to the other night. He wanted to get that gig out of the way before mm-hmm. he sat down. And maybe he would actually record something with the um, the bass player in the band. Ooh, that'd be good. Yeah, yeah. And I told him, you know, it only had to be like 45 seconds or a minute. And yeah. Something jazzy, bluesy. He plays guitar, our friend John. And, yeah. And uh, like that. So, yeah, we don't have uh, introductory music, but this is, ta-da, the... Kate and Vince Gelso podcast number three. Episode three. Episode three. And we have a special guest. You want to introduce our special guest? Freddie. Freddie Skelso is with us. Freddie Skelso, my my wife (laughs) and uh, your mother. And she is here because we are going to pick up where we left off with me interviewing you in episode one. And in an hour and 15 minutes, we only got you to your first job in radio, which was at WFMU at Uppsala College. And um, which, which no longer exists. Uppsala so. doesn't exist, but WFMU does. Yeah. You can go back to episode one of our podcast to find out what happened to Uppsala College. Yeah. But WFMU, yeah, it's a, like one of the leading freeform radio stations in the world. What with the internet and everything these days, it still exists. But mm-hmm. when I began there, it was 1967, and it was uh, what was what passed for radio in those days on college radio stations, which was sort of a semi-academic thing where there were like there were lectures and classrooms on the air, like there were professors who who did lectures and. Uh, there were sort of generic shows, like somebody did a folk music show and somebody else did a classical music show. And it was uh, college radio until that point in the 60s was really pretty generic and boring. Um, it wasn't until people who were part of the whole counterculture in the 60s began working at college radio stations that suddenly college radio became a, a, a force. And it really didn't become a, a powerful industry-wide force until uh, the 80s and the, and the 90s when right. when that music, the music that you grew up with when you were a kid, for instance, became, um, became commercial enough that college radio helped to sell records. Right. You know, bands like R.E.M. would never have happened if they had depended on commercial radio at the time to, to break them. So what year, so we got you up to, was it, it was your first year at Uppsala? 1967 was when I started doing the radio show there. Okay. In, in early November of 1967. And mom was, and in the first episode you can hear the story of how dad followed mom to Uppsala. <laughs> and mom was going to college at Uppsala. And what year did you start that same year? 65. 65, Okay. And you, Dad, said before that you had been involved in the poetry magazine. We, we had you both, both were. We had both been involved in the poetry magazine. I mean, I, I followed Mom in 65. No, 66. Right. Mom started in September 65, and I took a, a night class maybe that first semester, and then in the second semester I started going full-time. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until... 67 that I began to pay attention to the radio station which was located in the same little ramshackle building a former house um, that housed the the literary magazine as well and was you were both involved in the literary magazine right what were you doing with them we were the poets <laughs> you were the poets we were the poets we were poets what yeah. did that involve writing poetry. Mm-hmm. And and then they would publish it? Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, dad was the star poet. Oh, excuse me. Uh, I I felt the whole thing was was pretty sexist, actually. The the males were the star of fill in the blanks. Well, everything in the sixties, the males were the stars, and the women were the ones who made coffee and right went right. for pizza and stuff. It wasn't until the early seventies when the whole consciousness raising thing. I'm I'm doing it now. Man, I? This just, is called yes. mansplaining. Yeah, I just yes. <laughs> that's Mans, called mansplaining. Yeah, you never heard I, of that before. I he just mansplains. I I no, thought I would sexism. Sit back and let you prove your point, oh, or let you prove my point. I'm yes. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> All right. The, the women were relegated to the Emily Dickinson corner. Literally. Was there an Emily Dickinson corner? No, no. just in, I wish there just in your mind, and um, and the men were revered for their their amazing insights. Did you start? Had you? Did you start at the poetry at the literary magazine first, and then Dad was like, oh, "I want to do that." Uh, yeah. Because you, yeah. you were at the school first. I was at the school first. I was a full-time student first. I was involved in the literary magazine. But just uh, at that point, I was having my stuff published. And then um, there became a, a literary group. It was a, you had to be invited to be part of this literary group so that expanded the whole thing and at that point dad was involved too what what that was just like a secret club of cool, uh, cool kids yeah yeah the cool poets <laughs> <laughs> did you have secret special meetings we had secret special meetings in which the other cool poets criticized the other cool poets like poetry. read each other's stuff or yes. read it out loud and then gave and feedback and said what shit it was yeah <laughs> uh, it was yeah. very discouraging it, especially for me and I think for a lot of people were there what do you think the ratio men to women in the group was I don't recall but but probably 60 40 there were more there were more men mm -hmm. and you know they were the men were getting in touch with their um inner Kerouac. Yeah, that was what was going on at the yeah. time. Do you remember who the editor of the magazine was? No. The, the Poetry Magazine? No. There were two magazines. There was the Poetry Magazine. Right. And then there was a sort of... Uh, the Literary Magazine. Well, yeah, but we tried to make it more like a humor-oriented yeah. thing. Um, so there were two different editors. And the editor of the Poetry Magazine was a guy whose first name was Leo who was a little bit older than everybody else. And it turned out he had been uh, in the Army and was a Vietnam veteran already in 1966 or whatever. He had been over there much earlier. But I, I regret that I never talked to him about that, about his experience there. And then the, the humor guy was that guy, um, Kramer, Larry Kramer or Ed, Cra no. Ed Ed Kramer Ed Kramer, do you remember him at all? He was. We have all these magazines yeah. downstairs in the basement. Oh we, my god, we really do. <laughs> okay. We I'll have do a whole episode just about the literary oh magazines god. of yeah. 1966 yeah. to 1968. Yeah. But which one did I did I pose on the gravestone for? That was the the literary slash humor magazine, wasn't it? Yeah. Speak, I think was the name of it. There was Speak, and then there was something else with a crocodile. A Greek. Yeah, Crocodilius. <laughs> Crocod yeah, something, something like that. Like that. Right. How often did the magazines come out? Whenever they were ready. <laughs> you wrote, Every once in a while. <laughs> you wrote for the newspaper, too, didn't you? Not in college. No? No. Oh. So, Mom, how long had you been involved in the in the literary magazine before you started feeling like this was not what you wanted it to be? I don't remember. Um, 
I don't think it was so much the literary magazine as it was the um, the the group, the the poetry group that I felt very uh, attacked. Okay, because you would get up at this thing. Where would they be held? Um, most things house? were held in the in the church, mm-hmm. like because it was a a Lutheran school, the gathering places were in the church or in the the uh, little calf there. And uh, yeah, I would read my poetry or I would give it to people to read and they didn't get it. So I felt as though I was in the wrong place. Who did you, what was your, what was your, how did you view your poetry? Like, did you have people who you who influenced you if the men were all writing Kerouac was there someone who you admired or were you just expressing yourself and that's what came out uh I was expressing myself and that's what came out but a lot of my poetry had humor in it and sarcasm in it and um it was it was a very serious time and humor in poetry was not was not taken lightly. It <laughs> <laughs> was not allowed. It's not funny. Do not be funny. It was serious yes. writing, and it was yes. not funny. I mean, in a way, I was inspired by E. E. Cummings because he was writing outside the box. Mm-hmm. He was he was doing something new and different. So I thought that was fascinating. Um, and I liked a lot of po- uh, modern poetry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dad, did you find? Were you in that group also? The the cool kids poet group. I guess I was on the edge of it, but oh, you were in it. Was they I? loved you. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I don't have the a, sun rose and set oh. on yeah. every word you wrote. I don't have as vivid a, a recollection of it as you do, though, because everything for me sort of starts in my memory with the radio station. But there was that period before the radio station. Yeah, was that? Yeah, I remember now. I did a thing once where where I borrowed somebody's clunky old tape recorder and I recorded the television at home because I was still living at my parents house then and then I brought it into the to the club that we had started in the basement of that church and read like weird you know avant-garde Ginsburg type poetry to the accompaniment of the clicking of the channels on the radio I have vivid mem- of, of the television on the tape recorder I, I, re- I just recorded myself clicking the channels yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was just this random noise coming off the television and I presented that one night mm-hmm. and that's like a memory I have of being um, an exciting part of the poetry group very avant-garde yeah. work it was also the same time the same room where we both, I believe, first heard people talking about the Vietnam War and telling us things that we didn't know. There were teach-ins that were being held there. Guest speakers would come in. That's That room is vividly in my memory as the place where I went, really? It's not like World War II, you know, good guys versus the bad guys. They're telling us stories about it. They're lying to us about it. Do you remember that, Mom? Uh, It was a gathering place. Mm. So, yeah, I I don't remember that specific instance. We're each going to have totally different memories. Do you have you two met? Yeah. No. And so, Dad. We have no shared history. So, Dad, you were, you literally, one day, you were in the building where the literary magazine was, had its offices, and you said, I wonder what's upstairs. Mm. I mean, I knew that the radio station was upstairs, but I went upstairs to look around, because I was getting more and more into music as a, as a consumer and a listener, 
And I was beginning to listen to WBAI a lot, which I think we mentioned last mm-hmm. time, and to Bob Fass's show, Radio Nameable, and found it fascinating what he was doing and sort of in the back of my mind thought, oh, it would be neat to do something like that. What was he doing that that seemed radical to you? He was creating something akin to recording the the television switching channels and then speaking over it and playing music underneath it and creating uh, a real oral soundscape that was also very visual, too. He was making movies on the radio, mm-hmm. really, with lots of found sound. Um, by found, I don't mean really found. I mean, you know, he went out and recorded it, but it sounded random. Um, and then taking music and not really playing the music the way DJs played music, but playing the music underneath other things, mm-hmm. playing the music like he didn't necessarily identify the music. The music was just part of the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. that how you know, how I, often was his show on? He was on every night, five nights a week. He was? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And then the, the weekend all-night guy was a guy named Steve Post who died about a year or so ago. Um, and Steve was, I was a big fan of his as well but they were two different people who brought two different outlooks to it all so you would turn you would go back to either first your parents house and then you got an apartment eventually you moved near campus Mm, right i had a couple of places places in and out for a few months at a time and then i'd go home and then i'd find another place but you if you were home in the evening you would turn on the radio and listen to bob fast Mm, yeah because he went on at midnight, so... Uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I would stay up half the night sometimes to listen to him. Really? Yeah. yeah. And what would you read? What else were you doing? I mean, were you... Frequently, <laughs> I would just listen to the radio. Really? I would be in the dark. I mean, see, I, I kind of came of age a few years earlier than that listening to Gene Shepard on the radio... Who Gene Shepard was a humorist and a monologist and a writer, most famous now for being the author of the the Christmas a Christmas story Christmas yeah, story. Yeah. That movie was based on one of his pieces, and and he's the narrator of a Christmas story. And uh, Shepard was on much earlier in the evening. That is to say, he was on at either ten or eleven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that was still sort of considered... On which station? W-O-R-A-M, which was uh, back in the early to mid-60s was the home of the last remnants of of much older kind of radio where there were um, soap operas still on the air and very convivial, sophisticated New York talk shows like the Dorothy and Dick show, you know, where these this couple um, uh, did a morning breakfast show broadcast from their apartment. Do you think you it know. really was? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it really was. Sure. Th- those cliches of that kind of radio c- were true. They came from a real place. Like most cliches, but do. they weren't really at their. They breakfast were in their table. breakfast table. No. Yeah. No. No. They were. How could they be? <laughs> you, you heard clinking. You know, oh, they were. And they would talk, and you know, they would talk about where, uh, what show they had attended the night before. Well, the that's premiere. Like, of, I think there's one of the things in the in Radio Days in the movie. You know that you get to see yeah. all the different. Um, genres of the personalities on them. One of them is is a send up of that of mm-hmm. this husband and wife saying, Oh, last remember yeah, last yeah. night at the theater yeah. we saw so and so And they're and then they're always like constantly arguing with each other when the mics are off and that kind And of your thing. mom would listen to all That was my shows. mom's show station. That was her station. This was, was all talk and it kept her company being the housewife all day long. My dad listened to W N E W A M which was the last hurrah of the big band kind of music, the big band vocalists like Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and Tony Bennett and people like that. Um, so that was like the combination of those two, the talk radio and the uh, uh, the music radio 
both reflected different parts of that grown-up New York life that we talked about that I was very um, desirous of entering. And Gene Shepard, when, how often was he on when he was Shep on? Shep was also on five nights a week. And was he doing storytelling? Yeah, yeah. he had like a 45-minute show, five nights a week. Frequently, he would tell one story that would last for the entire 45 minutes. Um, he would, it would be extemporaneous. He wasn't reading things. I mean, I'm sure he had notes and stuff, but he would, uh, or he would sometimes just riff on whatever was going on in the world. But so many of the stories that eventually became short stories published in Playboy magazine, for instance, he published a lot there. Um, and then books were published in God, we trust all others pay cash and, you know, collections of his short stories. So many of those stories had their beginnings as monologues on the radio. And so he, and it was like, he was doing storytelling with words and then, and then Bob Fass was doing this like storytelling with sound yeah, and that exactly. both of those things were. That's what you were listening to. Mm -hmm. Was he, Gene Shepard, was, were you still listening to him when you were at Uppsala? Was he on still then? Do you remember? Yeah, I forget when he, when he stopped doing radio. Okay. I don't remember. So you had a consciousness in your, in your mind about, oh, I'm interested in this radio thing. And there's a radio station right here. Let me go see what it is. Mm, yeah. And you convinced them to give you a show. You said, I want to do a show. Yep. Uh... The guy who was the general manager, who was a student, and later became the crime reporter for the Star-Ledger. Hmm. I can't think of his name now, but every once in a while I would say, oh, so-and-so's got an article in the Ledger, you know, 15 years later, 20 years later. Uh, yeah, I said, can I come in? Like, they, they would sign the station on at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon and then sign it off at 9 or 10 or maybe 11 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. And frequently, because it was being run like a club, mm -hmm. frequently the station wouldn't get signed on at all if the person who was supposed to be the engineer didn't feel like doing it that day. It wasn't very, it wasn't run professionally. It and they had a real, they had a real radio signal, but it wasn't, it didn't go very far. No, no, they had a real oh, it signal. It was 1,500 watts. Um, with the transmitter on top of the hill in West Orange, the station was in East Orange, but the top of the hill meant that it could reach pretty far. I mean, it, it, it reached into Connecticut, it reached out to Western Jersey, and it reached into certain neighborhoods in New York, which a year later became very important because we became this freeform, interesting radio station that a lot of people in New York... It's the same today with with FMU's current signal. There are places where it reaches in Manhattan and other neighborhoods where it doesn't. There are places in ba in um, Brooklyn where it reaches and other neighborhoods where it doesn't. Well, and it's much more. The airwaves are much more crowded now. I, I well, now no, no, not really. You think it was the, the same? same number of stations yeah. we're on. Yeah, there's always been a limited number of stations, and they've always been used in the New York area. Yeah, yeah, the frequencies have been used. Okay. So when was your show on? So you talked them into giving you a show. Yeah, I said, well, what about, um, did you ever stay on all night? What about if, <laughs> and they're like, oh, all night, are you kidding? I said, well, you know, did you ever listen to WBAI, Bob Fast, Steve Post? You know, they have these great all-night shows. And what if we did like a Saturday night, all night? And, uh, I, you know, I would play my own records and I would talk and I would have guests and, you know. Other students could come by and talk about what they did. And I just envisioned it as being this place where people would come and hang out. Because that was the other aspect of, of Bob Fass's show, was that there was a whole community based around the show. So that when we finally get to the Chicago convention in 68, a lot of that was planned on the air on Bob Fass's show with Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and Dave Dellinger and all those guys. Literally, they would come Literally, on and yeah. say, this is what we're going to do. Yeah, this talk about it on the it. air. Yeah. So I envisioned a similar kind of community that might develop around what I was doing. To 
Did you envision that people would move into the radio station <laughs> and live there? No, no, no. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't, yeah. didn't yeah. envision that. <laughs> and then there became a thing. Maybe th- some animals. Yes. Would. Oh. Only a few kittens. That nothing. Oh. So <laughs> that first show that I did, it had a name because Bob's show had a name, Radio Unnameable. So I named my show The Closet. And... This was before that phrase, you know, out of the closet or in the closet was so connected to the gay rights world. Right. Uh, my idea was, and I think I mentioned this before, that I would bring all my music and I would put it like in a closet. And then every Saturday night I would open the closet a la an old radio show called Fibber McGee and Molly. It was a running gag back in the 30s or 40s all the stuff would tumble out of the closet because it had all been, you know, shipshod, put back in. And uh, and then during the course of the show, I would play the records and slowly put them back in the closet. So you would start with, with a sound effect yeah. of yeah. everything falling out of a closet right. and say, oh, um, let's see what I pick up tonight. Yep. yep, and frequently in those first months, there was nothing on before me. So this was Saturday night. Saturday night. Starting, when would you start? Midnight, but I would come in earlier to sign the station on. And for the first couple of months, we would sign it on and just have um, some kind of sound effect. I think the first few shows, it was like a clock, like a ticking clock. And that was all you heard for like an hour. And then, uh, and then there would be the sound effect of a door squeaking open, and the stuff would come tumbling out, and and then I would play the first of numerous theme songs. It seemed like I had fifteen theme songs. Um, there was a guy later on who who did. He did an hour show in the afternoon, and he had so many theme songs that. He never got to really do the show. That was the whole he, show. Yeah, the whole show was was his three or four themes. That's songs. good. I like that. Yeah. Um, so I would sign the station on, meaning, you know, literally turn the transmitter on, you know, remote control to the transmitter in West Orange, and then uh, go for as long as I wanted to go and then sign it off. How long did you usually go for? Usually we went until 5 or 6 in the morning. And who was we? Who was there with you in the well, beginning? Well, there was a guy who uh, I was friendly with in one of the classes I was attending who lived in the town next to the town that I lived in. I lived in Roselle Park. He lived in Union. And sometimes we drove to East Orange together to go to classes. And I said to him, I was doing this thing, and would he be interested in learning how to be an engineer? And he said, yeah. And so he, I don't even remember who he, you know, I don't remember him now. But he became my engineer. He got involved in the station and learned how to work the controls and got a third-class license because in those days you needed a license to sign the transmitter logs. And the license, you know, you had to go into the FCC office in New York and take a test. It was a real radio station. Yeah, it was was an FM station, 1,500 watts. But there were no repercussions for having dead air half the week that was no. just no one cared no no one cared right. so mom when did you when did you get involved at what stage um i guess it's when dad decided that the station should go on full time and continue over the summer mm. So, so yeah, what, how, so did you, we, so, how did you finagle your way all right. into that? So, <laughs> so we started in, in the fall, late, uh, late fall of 67. And there was, a, there was a very interesting power struggle that happened because on Friday nights, there was a guy doing an oldies show, like playing music from the 50s and early 60s. It was a rock and roll like a Cousin Brucey kind of oldie show with right. dedications and stuff. And for a while, there became an us versus them, liberal versus conservative, left versus right kind of a power struggle between the Friday night show, which was on 
more regular hours, like was eight, he a eight teacher? To 10. No, no, he, he was, was just a guy. He was a student. Oh, a student. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and and uh, the Saturday night show, the hippies versus the the jocks, the squares. you know, the squares, the straight kids, and he was jealous because I had convinced the station manager to let me be on all night, and he was only on for two hours, like from eight to ten. So there was this weird kind of power struggle, but the station manager didn't like that guy very much, (laughs) liked me a whole lot more, you know, liked the idea of being more, you know, far out and hippie. And and relevant. I mean, you guys were a part, you were doing something that was exciting and of the moment. So I guess now that I'm thinking about it and the time period, I must have started doing a children's show on Sunday morning shortly after you started on Saturday nights. You think, yeah? Well, you yeah. would take over when he, whenever he was done? Well, it's just that by the time 68 came around, summer of 68, I was pretty well ensconced. Well, yeah, my recollection... Okay. Of it. I mean, <laughs> I I've been I've told this story to enough people over the years, so I think that I'm, he thinks what he has to say is correct. Yeah. Well, at least it's <laughs> you repeat it enough. We know if that. you repeat it enough times, well, it makes it true. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, it's also it's the accepted history sure. of okay. FMU. Oh yeah. Okay. Timeline, Tell us the accepted history. Yes. Is that in the spring of '68? A lot of things began happening in the real world. Martin Luther King was murdered in April, right, of 68. And then um, uh, there was some other big event that happened in that spring. And everything was like bubbling and about to burst. And we were coming up to summer vacation. And... Normally, at the radio station, the station would completely close down for several months during the summer mm-hmm. uh, because the school basically closed down for several months during the summer. And I went to this guy whose first name was Bob now. I'm remembering it was Robert. I don't think Randy—I don't think Rand Bullard was the general manager yet. Rudolph? Bob Rudolph. Yeah, that was his name. Became the crime writer for the Star-Ledger. Thank you, Bob Rudolph. Yeah, come closer. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> come, come closer, dear. Come closer. Come closer. Uh, I said to this guy, what if we did like a, a how, what, what, what would it take to stay on the air for the summer? And he found out from the station advisor who was a, um, uh, an employee of the college, he was like the guidance counselor or the um, he was the financial aid guy or something. His name was Charlie Lundgren. But Charlie Lundgren was the faculty advisor for the for the radio station that it would cost about three thousand dollars to keep the radio station on to pay the, the, the rental fee for the transmitter site and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the bills, the electricity and, the, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I, I said to this guy, Rudolph, I said, well, what if we had like a fundraising marathon? Because we're a non-commercial station, which means we can be listener supported like WBAI was. What if we like, well, it's Memorial Day weekend soon. What if we went on over Memorial Day weekend and we said we want to keep the station on for the summer and we want to be full-time freeform radio? And he got permission from Lundgren for us to do that. And that's what we did on Memorial Day weekend of 1968. Now, I think we had started already to inject more people onto the schedule. schedule. Yeah. And that's probably when you started some sometime in March or April. Well, that's yeah. 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 Because I, I believe I started before the marathon. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And what was your show, mom? I did a children's show in which I, uh, read chapters of Winnie the Pooh using 
voices, appropriate voices mm. for the characters. Wasn't it called Pooh Corner? It was. And then I interviewed the children. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's so cute. It was kind of cute. Who did you interview? Whatever unsuspecting seven or eight-year-old <laughs> I could find. Mo uh. Most of them were last-named D'Antonio, probably. The D'Antonio children <laughs> and uh, my mother's neighbors and any any. You know, young child whose whose parent would let them get in a car with me. Well, oh my God, I would, I would interview. It should be said that at this point you were now um, working towards getting your teaching license, your degree in in uh, uh, elementary school teaching. Right, that's what you wanted to be at this point, or not? Yes. Yeah. But yeah, then you also went to secretarial school too, and to the whole this. You're, you know, life is full of, like, so many weird complications. We need to, yeah, you know? I'm, I'm willing to edit some of that <laughs> mentally. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm mentally editing that. Yeah, uh, I was going right. to be a teacher at yeah. this point. But you okay. liked, you, that was, it was your idea. You liked talking to the kids. Oh, and it, was it was totally fun. my idea. And I, I played some music, and it was completely my choice of what I would do. Do you and see it, now how ridiculously adorable that is that oh, that's like the cutest thing anyone's ever heard of that you had a <laughs> Sunday morning show where you read Winnie the Pooh and interviewed children it was it was ridiculously adorable at the time <laughs> I mean and why else would I do it it totally fit into my idea of what the radio station could be that it was a community yeah, thing yeah. well it's interesting because it's not I I, what I like so much about that you did that show is, I mean, I think you, my impression of you was that you were, you were a cool, you were a cool girl. You were writing poetry. I mean, but that's not the coolest thing to do to have a children's show. And I like that it, I mean, it's very sincere to do a children's show where you're reading Winnie the Pooh. And I like that that had a place there, that this wasn't just a posturing oh we're so cool we're playing the cool music we're in with the cool thing or do you think that it was you felt a little out of place like you weren't cool oh no i didn't feel out of place at all the the thing about that time was the the weirder you were the more kind of the more hip that was and it was it was a very inclusive time for people who uh, thought more broadly or could write poetry and march in anti-war demonstrations and read children's books to right. children. Oh, yeah, that's cool, man. You do a kid's show? That's mm, cool. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Oh, I like Winnie the Pooh, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a very inclusive <laughs> time, except it was it was very, very narrow-minded politically. That's where it was not an inclusive time, was politically. So, okay. So you raised the money to keep... To keep going over the summer. And I just remembered something about what what intrigued me about the radio station upstairs when I was still doing the poetry thing. Yeah. Was it something that, that Fred Freddie just said about being inclusive was that I would see these very odd, different type people coming in and walking up the stairs to the radio station. Very, very um, obese one guy was there was another guy who was in a wheelchair yeah and and he had friends who carried him up and put him back in the wheelchair there was a blind man right who did a a, a folk music an afternoon folk music show played his guitar right you know there were all these like freaky kind of people like real you know yeah I, and i don't mean to you know be politically incorrect or but there were intriguing people intriguing, walking up those yeah, stairs would, where you were like what's that guy's what's that blind guy playing on the radio yeah the point is and it really hit home was that nobody listening knew right these odd things about these people 
all you heard was their talent. All you heard was their voice. Mm-hmm. And that went hand in hand for me in this idea that you could create something that didn't have a real visual component, but had this fantastical. Yeah, that's not a, a word, but yeah, it this is. Fan- yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 you could create whatever you wanted. Right. There's a magic to just listening to something mm-hmm. and an intimacy to it. Mm-hmm. And a freedom where it becomes it the the persona of the person speaking is is less important in a way. Like the person listening can take on so much of it and project so much onto it. Yeah, and we we asked that guy, the blind guy, to continue working for a while, but he didn't. You know, he didn't last. He didn't. He he. It wasn't something he wanted to do. It was just like a hobby. And suddenly, we were doing this radio very seriously. We've at I went around. I became the program director. So this was summer of '68. Yeah, well, you, spring, spring of '68. Spring of '68, and you had got, and you were like, okay, now we've got a right. summer to fill. And I went around the the school and found some people who I knew were into music, and I asked them if they were interested in doing radio shows. That's how I met George Black, um, one of my oldest and dearest friends, who rest his soul, no longer with us. Um, George and I became roommates and and uh, and what uh, was it about friends. George that you liked? George w- George had an amazing look. George was a large man, um, tall, stately, you know, like, a- and he always wore a black suit, three piece suit with a tie. This was in you know the sixties when nobody looked that way. He had mutton chops. And a hat. Black hat. Yeah, he had this black, black sort of, like a, like a Western hat. Or like a, he looked like a preacher in a Western movie. Uh-huh. You know? And um, we would see George around in the years prior to the radio. We would see George and wonder about him. We would think, was he a narc? You know, was he a cop? I mean, right. there was a fear of narcs back then, the narcotics. Because he looked out of place. Yeah, he looked totally out of place, and he must be, there must be a reason for that. And, you know, we just, we were suspicious of him. But I finally got to know him and discovered that he had this incredible sense of humor, and, and we agreed about a lot of things politically, and we became friends, and... George knew a lot of classical music. So what 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 we wanted we wanted people who had wide-ranging interests in music because the idea of freeform radio as it grew and developed at FMU was that it wasn't just about rock and roll or folk music or pop music. It was about creating this this soundtrack which included jazz, it included classical music. So George got there because he knew a lot about classical music. Um, Lou D'Antonio, the duck, got there because he, he was an older person who had gone to Uppsala, but now was out in the world. He was a teacher. He still he did a jazz show on FMU prior to our, our taking it over. And we went to him and said, hey, do you want to continue to do your jazz show and maybe throw in some of this other music, too? That was the idea, was that we wanted people from all musical tastes to participate in making this freeform radio station. Do you think that came from just your own, that you liked a lot of different kinds of music? Where do you, Or was that reacting to the fact that radio was so musically segregated that it was either top 40 or this or that. Yeah, yeah. That it was about breaking down those boundaries. It was about breaking down the boundaries. And yes, I was interested in lots of different kinds of music and saw that that there was a relationship between them all. You know, that, that Gene Krupa playing the amazing drum solo in Benny Goodman's band doing Sing, Sing, Sing was not that different from Keith Moon flailing away on the drums with the who, you know, it was, there was a relationship there. Um, but there, there became in that spring, a guy over that weekend, Memorial Day weekend, 
who called us up, and he was a, a local guy from New Jersey. His name was Larry Yurton. Larry was from, like, South Orange or someplace, um, and he had done some volunteer work at WBAI, but then he moved to San Francisco, and in San Francisco, he had worked with this guy, Tom Donahue, who was one of the first of the big commercial top 40 people to embrace this countercultural idea of radio. And Tom Donahue was one of the first guys to actually call it freeform radio. Um, and Larry had come back from spending time out there, called us up and said, you know, what you guys have the ability to do is what Donahue does in San Francisco and, and Bob Fast does in the city, you know, and can I come by and can we talk? And that was the thing. Like once we went public with the idea on that weekend and started actually getting phone calls and getting people to, to contribute money, people started to come by the station and some of them were more than just fans and more than just kids looking for a cool place to hang out. Some of them had ideas for making it even better. And Larry was one of those guys. And it was Larry Yurton who a couple of years later was hired by WABC, uh, the ABC network, to be a, an advisor for them when they began doing um, a kind of a freeform format on their stations around the country it was larry who recommended me to them as being a guy who they should talk to because you know i came from this background at fmu so larry was the guy who inadvertently got me my first job in commercial radio mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh you know that's a debt that i that i uh, that i owe him so you were creating so just in making this announcement of we're raising money to stay on all summer you were creating this space that people were really kind of hungry for, yeah. that there was people reacted to that and came to were coming to you and saying, I want to be a part of this. Uh -huh. And then how how full was your summer schedule that summer? Do you remember? It was we I guess by the by the end of the summer, we're running it fairly full time. We still would sign off at night. We weren't 24 hours all the time. I was doing the the late night, midnight to whenever show, and I would sign it off whenever I felt like signing it off. And the morning person would come in whenever he woke up and came in. So there was still that aspect of sloppiness to what we were doing. But, uh, but basically we'd be on the air from 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. Those couple of hours that we would sign off, and that pretty much remained the way we ran it for the the year and months that we were there. It was only a year and and a few months that you really that this period of yeah that that period went from spring of nineteen sixty eight through early autumn of nineteen sixty nine, so it was a little more than. A year it was a year and four months, five months. So let's say it was about a year and a half. It was the longest year and a half <laughs> in my life. I think Freddie would agree that yeah. it, it lasted forever because so much happened every day. The world changed, and there was something new, and it was all. It was all like. It was all what? Intense. Uh, intense, yeah. It was extraordinarily intense. Politically, emotionally, the world was going through something. The station was going through something. It was, it was an intense time to be alive and an incredible time to have the station. Yeah. Do you, how would you characterize, like, can you describe mom a little bit about the vibe of of the station at the time and how right people who moved in and and the community that that formed around it well what started to happen actually very shortly after the money was raised to stay on during the summer was that people started hearing about the station a lot of local people 
uh, some people f from New York who were uh, music writers um, involved in the music business, and people would start to come and hang out. It was in a house, and sometimes people would come and hang out and just not leave. Because how much you guys had the whole second floor of this well, house? Well, eventually or? we had the whole house. You kicked out the literary magazine? Yeah. Well, it was yeah. summer initially. Uh -huh, so no one else so was nobody there. Nobody else was there. So you just made yourselves comfortable. Yeah. Well, you know, we had homes. We had places to go. But there were people who didn't. And, and maybe, you know, one night they wouldn't go home. But eventually... Some people started making homes in this place. Because there were rooms that yeah. were yes. just... Like downstairs, the whole downstairs were... There were, there what, were three, three or four, three or four rooms, rooms that were like... It, this had been a house at one time. Right. So there were rooms that were analogous to the dining room, the living room, right. you know, whatever. Um, upstairs was all studio space. There were several studios and then a big master control room. And uh, um, the general manager's office was upstairs. But then, then at some point that summer, the GM stopped working for us. I guess he needed to get a real job or something, this guy Bob Rudolph. And we got a new general manager who was one of these students who came by and was interested in what we were doing. And his name was Rand Bullard. And he was a perfect GM because he was a very straight-laced appearing guy. He was handsome and tall, and he looked like a um, he looked like a jock. He looked like a you know a basketball player, a football player, or something. And he knew how to talk that talk. He was from a wealthy family, so he knew how to like look good in a jacket and tie. And we needed that to placate the school because the school came back in September and we had taken over their radio station. Right. They were like, what is yeah, happening? <laughs> what happened here? You know, and Rand Bullard, that was his name, Ransom Bullard. Right? Amazing. Yeah. Amazing Rand, name. Rand became uh, um, good friends with Charlie Lundgren, the faculty advisor. And between Rand and Charlie, they kept the college at bay. They, they, kept us safe for that because they period. looked respectable they could they could say oh no i've got it under yeah. control yeah 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 and they they knew how to talk the talk and walk the walk of the straight world as well as come and you know smoke a joint with us later at right night, you know. so the big so just to uh just to remember some of the big characters who were around then so george George Black was still was involved the whole time. Yeah, George became uh, um, the production director, which uh, meant that he he was actually the guy who fixed things. It wasn't a typical production director. He was more like an engineer, like a chief engineer, but he wasn't really the chief engineer because he didn't have the proper license for that. There was a, a guy who was the chief engineer um, who maintained the transmitter. But George became a real um, uh, handyman kind of guy with a solder gun, you know, who knew how to get rid of the hums and things, which I would always, George is a hum in Studio B, you know, and George would figure it out. And uh, yeah, so George and, and Lou and Lou, Lou D'Antonio. Now, Lou, the, the, the great story with Lou is that um, I tried to fire Lou that summer. Because uh, we just felt that he didn't fit in. He was like, you know, he knew his jazz and he was good on the air. He was funny, but he was a little too straight for us. Right. And he was just, he wasn't sort of, he wasn't doing jazz plus whatever. No, he right. just wanted to play his jazz. Yeah, and he was older. You know, he was what, about eight or nine years older than oh, us? Oh, he was, he was in his 30s. Okay, so he was much older than us. We were 20 and he was in his 30s. He had a family. He had three kids and wife, you know, the whole deal. Uh, and so I, I once, uh, one afternoon, I, I took him to the campus cafeteria for a cup of coffee. And I 
tried to fire him. And at some at a certain point, he said, you're trying to fire me, aren't you? And I said, yeah, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not fire you, Lou. I just think that, you know, you, you, you. And of course, we became best friends. He was my best man when I got married. We were lifelong friends, you know, yep. as we were with George Black. All of us, that whole crew became, you know, lifelong friends. And I said, well, no, I don't really want to fire you. I just think that if you just, like, were a little looser and a little more open to. And he goes, you mean like? And then he started mentioning things that he could, because he really was very hip. I just didn't know it. And he wasn't showing it off. But he knew about this other music. And what he didn't know, he was certainly willing to embrace, to listen to and embrace. And he became uh, a longstanding member of the WFMU staff long after the rest of us left. Right. He stayed on. He stayed there for years. Mm-hmm. He was there even after you were born, mm-hmm. you know, because we used to go and visit him, you and I. Yeah. And he did radio his whole his whole life also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think maybe we should. Um, yeah, because we have uh, we s- this amazing audio that we want to play, but we're. Why don't we save it for the next episode? Yeah, we'll make this a two-parter. Yeah. I think that's good. So what, what, what we're doing, Kate and I, this is the Kate and Vin Skelsa podcast. And this is episode three that you're listening to now. The podcasts are available on iTunes. You can subscribe. It's all, you know, free. It doesn't, there's no money involved. And we just record this in my home studio where I did radio for um, years and uh, uh, we we are trying to do like two of these shows a, m- a month mm-hmm. yeah. and posting them at the beginning of the month and then the middle of the month. Well, they're on Saturday. I'm doing every other. We're doing every other Saturday. Saturday. Mm-hmm. And and the other place it's available, obviously, on, on iTunes, you can download it. But then what's that? The other place? SoundCloud. SoundCloud. You can stream it on SoundCloud. You can stream it. And you are about to publish your 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 novel yeah, on so September eighth. September eighth, my book is out. It's called about a week Fans. from when this goes on the air. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's called it's called Fans of the Impossible Life, and I'll just do a little uh, plug because I'm I'm planning some events around the book coming out, and the first one is going to be on September fifteenth. I'm going to be yeah. Fans of the Impossible Life, we should inform people, mm-hmm. is a young adult novel mm-hmm. being published by Harper and Collins, Balzer and Bray. Uh-huh. It's a big, it's like one of the exciting novels of the fall season in the young adult world. It's getting a lot of attention <laughs> paid to it. Independent booksellers uh, gave it some kind of, you know, play. Yeah, some kind of, of something. It's gonna, it's a, it, and it's a great book. It's like so beautifully written and so touching and funny and lovely and and it has it does have um a lot of crossover to adult read i mean i wrote yeah. it with the idea that adult readers would enjoy it also yeah. so um yeah so it's not just for teens and i'm going to be in in california in september and i'm going to be doing an event at the booksmith in san francisco on september on tuesday september 15th um, in conversation with um, Mariko Tamaki, I, b- I believe that's how you say her name, um, but she is uh, really uh, writes these really beautiful graphic novels and very um, coming of age, just awesome work. And so we're going to be in conversation at mm-hmm. the Booksmith on September 15th in San Francisco. So if anyone is in San Francisco, or um, knows people there, uh, yeah. And then I'm going to be doing something in Los Angeles that following weekend, the 19th and 20th, and um, it'll be on my website on kateskelsa.com. So if you're in Los Angeles, I'll be there around then uh, doing some kind of cool event. What about in, in our part of the country, in the New Jersey, New York area? I'm going to do a, a New Jersey event and a New York event, um, and I'll have them on my website, too, and I can give more information about them later. Okay, kateskelsa.com. Kateskelsa.com. And we have uh, an email address here mm-hmm. at the podcast, which is? Kate and Vin Skelsa podcast at gmail.com, if you want to get in touch with us. And the and is spelled out, right? Kate, mm-hmm. Kate 
A-N-D, Vin Skelsa with no mm-hmm. periods or capital letters or anything. Yep. Right? Kate and Vin Skelsa. Kate and Vin Skelsa podcast. Podcast at, at gmail.com. Gmail. And, uh, okay, so so we'll end this episode. Uh-huh. And, and then we'll um, come back in two weeks and we'll pick up with, um, with Freddie, not as a children's show host, but Freddie, as um, a member of the New Jersey delegation for a presidential candidate in the summer of 1969. 68. 68? 68 or 69? What? 68? 68. Mom says 68. Yeah. Was it the summer of 68? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Why did I? Okay. In the summer of 19... <laughs> because the time stretched so yeah. much. I can't believe that was just a few months after we started. I know. That's, it doesn't... Mm. Weird. She was, she was in Chicago for the infamous Democratic Convention yep. and police 1968, riot. 1968, Democratic and, National Convention. Yeah. 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 And so... Um, We've got she, some audio. We have audio of, of her um, calling back and reporting her experience as a delegate in Chicago. And we'll play that on episode four. I, I actually wasn't a delegate. Not a delegate. I mean, you worked. You were a volunteer. I was a volunteer. A volunteer with the delegation. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks for episode four of the Kate and Vin Skelsa podcast. Thanks to our guest, my wife of all these many years, Freddie Skelsa. And Kate. Thank you for having me. (laughs) As my wife or as my guest? Well, as our guest. Take your pick. All right. Kate's, Kate's mom for some 30, how many years? 35. 35, 35 years. years. And don't forget, fans of The Impossible Life, pub date September 8th. 8th. September 8th in the U.S., September 10th in the U.K. And we've got, and uh, it's coming out in a bunch of countries, but those are the only pub dates I, I know for sure. Okay. Yeah. Good. Bye. Bye.